Project A podcast. Hello and welcome to the Project A Founders podcast with this episode focusing on commercialization, which includes marketing, sales and data topics. My name is Anastasia. I'm the head of marketing here at Project A. Our team helps our portfolio companies with anything from customer acquisition to customer engagement. And here with me today is Amber Riedel, founder of Makerist, the market leader in Europe for digital patterns and e-learning classes. Thanks for joining us today. So our topic today, finding your first 100 customers that love you. Uh, but first of all, Amber, please uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing now that you have sold Makerist. Hi, Anastasia. Thanks for the invite. I'm Amber Riedel. I'm a Canadian living in Berlin since a number of years. I have two boys, love to be outside in nature, love DIYs and building things. And that basically brings me to Makerist. Um, I love to figure out how to make things more efficient or um, just better for people uh, in, in each stage. I love storytelling. Um, I love content marketing and I love growing um, with other people. Today, we're going to be talking mostly about Makerist. So I can share my insights from my role as co-founder and managing director. There, I was um, generally working on marketing, community, um, business development and internationalization. And since I've left Makerist, I have also kind of an interesting journey, especially in the last year. It has a lot to do with me. It has a lot to do, let's say, with, with COVID and um, maybe some interesting, I don't know, some interesting learnings or parallels uh, that you've also seen in the last year. Did you want to jump into that now, Anastasia, or should we get to that later? Let's get into that later. Let's start maybe with Makerist and um, yeah. Uh, how you basically started off. So all beginnings are super hard. Um, can you recall how you uh, started and share a little bit of your growth techniques, so to speak? How did you get your first 100 true fans that really loved the product? Um, and um, yeah, also a little bit about the target group. Was that entirely female? So let me tell you really quickly about Makerist. We're the leading European platform for DIY and creative hobbies. Um, here you can find really everything that you need for your sewing, knitting, uh, creative project from start to finish, and also all the instructions and the, like the step-by-step -step guides on how to be able to complete it. Um, and this was the idea behind Makerist. We saw that a lot of people were interested in um, uh, creative hobbies, but also didn't really know where to start or didn't feel confident enough to do that. Also, this idea that maybe handicrafts kind of skipped a generation, um, that people were not learning in the traditional ways anymore from their parents or grandparents, um, and that there was a really an opportunity to do something here uh, in this market. I founded Makerist in 2013 with Axel Heinz. And at that time, we, um, we saw that something was missing in the market. And we thought that it's actually what's missing is much more this idea of um, supporting people to find their creativity and to take uh, to be able to take a project from start to finish. And we were looking at 
um, a company in the US called Craftsy that was focused very strongly on video classes. And we took this really as the, the starting point for makers. We said, okay, we'll also do it with video. We'll do short how-to videos, how to complete a project from start to finish so that people that um, don't already know how to sew or to knit can enter those hobby areas and feel supported. Cool. Yeah. And and how did you? I mean, um, how did you start to to getting your first customers and really getting those uh, first fans that uh, really were like, uh, okay, this is a great platform. I really want to use it. Um, so that was 2013. That was a while ago. We were using Facebook for our growth hacking in those days. So really, um, to test the market for ourselves, we wanted to see how big is the interest really from people and how sort of engaged are they around those topics? So we started Facebook pages called um, Ne Cafe and Stuttgart Cafe, which were not specifically around our brand, but were specifically around those hobby areas to see um, how many people would join us on those pages, how engaged they would be. Um, and we just started posting some I guess like some interesting or helpful content about projects that we saw that were interesting, some tips that we found and people got really engaged and um, our following grew really, really quickly on those pages. And that's where we saw, okay, there is something here or there, you know, there, there is an opportunity to do something here and we have to find out really how to connect with this target group the best and find out really like what their needs and wishes are. And that was basically, that was a strategy that we started right from the start. I mean, even before we launched the platform, we were running these Facebook groups um, and that sort of informed our strategy, I, I would say all the way through. It's a really good way to get, um, you know, to get to know those first hundred customers and then to be able to get a really good feedback on your product Um when you have even, you know, much more than 100 customers. Yeah. And and how did you um, also measure this product market fit? So at what point you uh, you were like, okay, we do have product market fit or was it like more of a, a gradual process that you always adapted it? And, and yeah, how, how was that happening? Um, it was definitely a gradual process because... Uh, this is also part of the maker's story. We did a lot of pivots on the way. I mean, um, I think this is really part of any startup story is that you sort of start with one idea and then you build it and then either it works perfectly and you just keep building it or you see something that could work better or you get a feedback from your target group that that wasn't it. Um, and that's something that we had, I would say, at least one time quite significantly at Maker's. Um, if not more often. So we first started with uh, these video classes um, and we did them as editorial videos. That means we were coming up with the ideas, creating the content together with these uh, creative designers and then taking over all of the production ourselves and the post-production. And at one point we just saw we weren't selling as many classes as we used to but we were selling an awful lot of patterns <laughs> and the amount of money that we put in and the amount of time and effort from our team that we put into making these video classes was really disproportionate to the uh, amount of effort it took us to run the patterns 
side of the business, which was set up as a marketplace. And there was really this one moment when we were doing fundraising where we had a really good and clear negative feedback from an investor who said, I'm not going to invest and I'm not going to invest not because it's not a good idea or because it's not the right team. I'm not going to invest because I see that you are spending too much effort on parts of the business that don't scale and you're not <laughs> putting all of your effort and all of your um you know, all of your team and all of your strategy into these parts of the business that just work on their own. So basically you pivoted from video classes to, to patterns. <laughs> exactly. We pivoted then from video classes to patterns. And this saved us, I would say. This is definitely like what uh, allowed us to keep going on because the video class production was so cost intensive. Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. And I mean, uh, did you just listen to investors or was it also the feedback of your customers, uh, of your first customers? And how much did you also listen to these like a small group of fans, maybe in the beginning? How much did you want to uh, actually adapt also um, the strategy there? I mean, in the beginning, you it's easier, I think, to listen to fan voices directly or to really no, like really go through all of that one-to-one uh, -one feedback in um, customer surveys or in social media groups. But as you grow, I think you also kind of have to look at the numbers as a way of um, analyzing customer feedback. So if the customers love what you're doing, they're going to buy it. And when they don't love it, then they're going to buy it less. And you can also read a certain type of feedback into that. And we did also see that... Um, people were purchasing these patterns actually like crazy and sometimes in in a frequency where it was clear they would actually never even be able to complete those projects from, you know, they would buy like 10 patterns at a time or something. And, and as someone who's doing uh, DIY, I would also think to myself, they'll never be able to make all of those things because it just takes like two or three months, you know, to knit a sweater. If you buy like 10 sweater patterns, Uh, you're going to be busy for the next three years. Yeah. So, so when when you realize that okay, we have um, something there, we we are going to pivot to patterns. Um, when did you start moving towards like a broader uh, marketing mix um, and include also maybe um, some other media than just Facebook and and Facebook groups and stop grow just growth hacking, let's say. Um, And yeah, how, how did that um, switch happen? I would say 2016, we started testing different channels. We started um, testing also in print publications um, with the support of some of our investors, which were publishing houses. We did um, one or two television campaigns to sort of test what that looked like. But what we kept coming back to is that our customers are on social channels and this these are the channels really that we have to continue to grow where we have to continue to reach them. Um, because we were, I mean, because we did have like a marketing team that was really good at um, customer journeys and CRM, we really just had this strategy of getting people to the website, getting them to sign up for something or buy something once, and then being able really to retarget them through CRM campaigns, RFM segmentation strategies. Um, in 2000, 
18, we started to build up uh, a data warehouse and a really strong um, BI system with dashboards for each team that they could really find out like on demand um, how many people came from which channel in which time, what were the what were the different KPIs by channel or by campaign. Uh, and this granularity made it really um, made it really easy for us to see where to put more marketing spend and where to put more resources. And one of the things that we extended also after that was another CRM tool. It's called Dynamic Yield. Um, this is a, a tool for marketeers to be able to show more personalized recommendations to their customers. And we felt like since we already had such, uh, first of all, such a large customer base and second, such a large inventory base um, and really structured data streams, this was exactly the right way to be able to um, you know, get our customers to become stronger returning customers by showing them with the use of AI. Uh, the things that would be most appealing to them. So if we knew, hey, they had bought um, uh, a knitting pattern, you know, three days ago, but we hadn't seen that they had bought any supplies, we could follow up, you know, quite strongly with um, exactly the supplies that they would need uh, on site and also in email campaigns. We, I mean, we also did tr really traditional channels like SEA and search. This, um, this is successful for us too, because we have really smart people working in those areas. But um, when we were, let's say, when we were just working with our patterns inventory or our video classes inventory, uh, it didn't really make sense because search volume on those types of things is quite low. Where it does make sense, though, is when we really get into this e-commerce layer that I've been talking about, of this upselling of fabrics and wool and uh, other materials to, to complete the project. So once we were able to really build out that inventory after the deal with FabFab, these, um, you know, all of the SEA, which we had built up over time, uh, became also really efficient. And and did, did that work out like in terms of your uh, average uh, order value? I mean, how, how many patterns you said a ton, like, some yeah. people were really yeah. buying like 10, 10 uh, patterns in terms of like acquisition costs. Um, was that because traditional media usually always, uh, yeah, a bit more expensive. Um, how did you manage that um, at that time? Um, at the top, so with the more traditional media packages, this was part of the investment deal that we got from those companies, from those investors. Um, and this definitely helped, I would say, give the brand and give the company like a certain brand recognition and trust in the target group. It was another touch point where customers saw us, but we were always, I think, pretty keen to reach our customers or our community where they spend most of their time. And those were really from start to finish on social channels. So in the beginning, strongly Facebook, but really over time, we built out channels like um, Instagram and especially Pinterest was a really strong traffic driver for us, which is clear when you think about the, the type of content that we were offering. Mm. Yeah, community is a, is a great point here. So I, I would also, I was thinking, yeah, community building is super important for you because that's like the audience is also very um yeah specific and probably also very connected um 
how did you do that? Did you have a community build, like a community manager that was um, uh, really engaged, engaging? How did you build this community? Did you have like a ton of uh, different groups that you were managing there uh, or any kind of your own platform? So how, yeah, how did, how did you do, do that? that? Um, well, with our, our, let's say our digital communities on social media, we we followed the strategy that we started at the beginning. So we didn't make it that much about us. We did not put ourselves in the center or make, let's say the community so much about makers, but we made the community very much about people's interests and about um, their making it about them and about their hobbies. So um, like I said, on Facebook, we started with these very large groups called Ne Cafe and Strick Cafe. And um, did like a really strong mix of content marketing there of uh, like free DIYs that people could access, getting tips from other people, um, showing finished products from other people. And then from time to time, of course, also, you know, things that we wanted to market. So if we had a special campaign running, we would also put that marketing information in those channels. But it was a pretty good mix between content marketing, let's say, and like performance marketing. Um, so that's one thing that, that we built it really not around ourselves, but around these interest areas. The other thing that was really important was that we put people always really at the, you know, at the face of the community. And again, not specifically us, but always, let's say the people that we were working with together. So if it was the video classes, we were promoting the trainer that was, that was teaching in the video classes. Um, if it was a, a pattern, then we were promoting the designer of the pattern. And that was that was like a great strategy for building community because it really allowed us to leverage the micro communities of these um, of these different designers and these different um, creatives. Uh, great. So, um, I mean, you, you mentioned video courses, uh, instructions or these patterns. Uh, but also, um, I saw that you also have materials now. Um, so, what what is or what is the average shopping basket, and also how often do people uh, purchase um, right now? Yeah. So um, at Makerist, I said we started with the video classes, then we did this pivot towards the marketplace for eBooks, and finally we added this e-commerce, um, uh, this e-commerce level onto yeah <laughs> e-commerce e card onto it um, and we tried this on our own um, because we knew actually how this should work it's like a classic content community commerce model so we get people engaged with the content we um, get them to stay and become part of the community and then we sell them over time over and over the things that they need um, and from time to like over time, makers just becomes that place that they think of when they think of their hobby and when they think of everything that they need to get for their hobby. Our average basket size is um, $10 for customers when they're buying patterns or when they're buying, you know, uh, just these digital products. But when we move into the e-commerce side of things and when we can get our customers to buy the products that they need for their projects, then we're moving into a basket size of about $40 or sorry, 40 euros. So it's really a big difference. Um, and when we think about, you know, when we think about sort of the optimizations that we can make with 
CRM, getting people to buy more often. Um, we did a lot of things there and that's, that was interesting. I can say more about that, but that's not going to move the needle that much because there's just not, you know, you, there's not that many patterns you can buy to really, mm -hmm. to really raise, to really move the needle. So for us to really move the needle, we saw we need to be able to convert many, many more of those people who are buying the content to also buy the supplies. And that was really the logic for us um, when we when we completed this deal then with FabFab in 2000. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But um, what I also wanted to ask you is around the marketing team, right? So how quickly did you start hiring for marketing positions? If you like look back in the beginning versus like the end sort of team, um, and yeah, what was your first hire also, maybe? Yeah, our first hire was Katrin Jans. Um, she was someone that Axel knew from Devanda, and she was our like the perfect first marketing hire, but the perfect first hire generally. She really, you know, felt a strong commitment and a strong responsibility to everything. And she really got us started on this strong content path that we're on now and um, saw the potential in channels like Pinterest and Instagram before they were popular and before they were really considered marketing channels. Um, so that's that was amazing. Um, and at the beginning, we had, I would say, like a few key people in the marketing team we had also Lars Kops who was like our entrepreneur in residence always testing like different growth strategies looking at the numbers um, we had a really talented graphic designer which was also a big part of our success is just like the things that we did looked good people wanted to buy them people wanted to wanted to like things the engagement got high and over time we just obviously moved from this more generalist profile into more and more specialization in the team. So um, I mentioned we started 2013. I think 2015, we hired our CMO. Um, and from there began to get a lot more specialized talent into the team. So people that were specialized really in um, performance marketing, in, um, in, in search and SEA and um, we built out, oh, we built out quite late, but actually for our business pretty early, I would say we're probably the best uh, in class when it comes to data and analytics. We started building in 2018, um, a really sophisticated data warehouse and attribution model because we have so many touch points for our customers and because we have so many customers, um, this is actually pretty valuable for us to know where we can attribute uh, revenue to, how long it takes for customers to make their purchases and really how to optimize going forward. Cool, uh, yeah, that, that's great. So th that was like the data warehouse building and the data analytics, at what point was that? Um, so were you already kind of internationalized or were you still in Germany? Um, we were, I would say we were already internationalized, but the strong growth hadn't yet happened um, in terms of internationalization. With the data warehouse and um, and the business intelligence modeling, it was really around the time when we said, okay, um, we, we know we have a really large group of 
uh, of customers already. We have to just be very precise in terms of what they want and how we reach them to tell them, you know, about our new offers to really get the most out of them. So it was a time when we also focused on um, returning customers rather than acquiring new customers. Mm, okay, so really cool. Um, so yeah, also wanted to touch upon the internationalization part and um, at what point you started to go beyond Germany and uh, also, yeah, which markets did you expand to and also why, how did you choose them? Um, so our second biggest market at Makerist is France. And then our third market is the UK. And we chose them, I would say, for a number of reasons. So first, we would look at um, what the competitor landscape looks like in those countries, how easy it is for us to internationalize our product to those areas. Um, I would say it's sort of the number of supporters we could imagine in each market. And um, what I don't know what we also thought was interesting in France is like some sort of some sort of stage of the market. So for us in our business, it's a we really saw sort of this DIY industry move from being an offline um, publishing industry into being an online industry. And um, in France, we were really at that right point there to convince uh, the creative designers who were working with publishing houses that the next right step for them was to become more um, independent, more entrepreneurial, and sell their designs directly to customers with our platform. And and um, I'm I'm also curious to see like, is is it like super easy to just replicate the content for France? You just hire a bunch of translators, or or and and then you just replicate everything, or did you? Like what were some of the main challenges to translate it to, to France, for example? And Okay, so we, we entered the market like this. We looked at the content that we owned that was like very unique to us. And that also helped us break into the market in Germany. This was the video classes. So we did do um, translation and voice over of a number of our best-selling video classes for the French platform to have that base of content there and to have sort of that um, unique content that was not available in the market yet. But in terms of our main revenue stream, which is the product or the patterns marketplace, we really ran it as a marketplace and we didn't um, translate the patterns ourselves. So we, um, in each market, we would look for the designers who are already active in that market and who are already having um, communities on social media uh, and reach out to these designers and convince them to sell their patterns instead of selling to a print publishing company to sell via our marketplace. Um, so the platform is the same across all of the countries and some of the content is the same, especially the video content, but the types of patterns that we offer are unique to each market because they're coming from the local markets. I mean, and that really makes sense for a number of reasons. One is because obviously the style that uh, the style of fashion in France is quite different from uh, the style in Germany and um, it's scalable, obviously. And um, when we acquire inventory in this way, we're also acquiring, as I mentioned before, these micro communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
makes sense. Um, so you, you talked a little bit about, yeah, in the beginning, obviously it was all about getting like the first customers um, that love you. Then at some point you were focusing more on uh, recurring customers and retention and you built this uh, data warehouse and, and uh, attribution modeling. So how did your KPIs change over time? And maybe also like, was it different for different markets? Like France, obviously new market, you weren't, um, you, you had totally different KPIs uh, there. And yeah, how, how did it develop over time? Um, so in the beginning, of course, we focused just on getting more customers. Like this is like the classic start to any company. Just get, just get more of those customers till you reach sort of a critical phase. Um, at Makerist, we, we usually worked with, um, or we did work with OKRs and we would have one company objective. Um, and instead of making the company objective, you know, we need to make, uh, $3 million, $3 million, uh, this year or this quarter, we would translate that from what we knew about our customers and their buying behaviors. We would make some sort of model out of this in terms of like, would, how many active customers do we need to engage? How many, um, or sorry, how many returning customers do we need to engage? How many, um, new customers do we need to acquire? Um, and, actually really modeling the average order values and the basket sizes in a quite sophisticated way so that we actually would reach, let's say, a revenue goal, but based on uh, a mix of customer acquisition and customer retention activities. Um, and I'm, I'm curious now to see yeah, what, what happened last year. So last year you were uh, acquired. Um, Makerus was acquired. Um, yeah, what changed for you? Um, also, maybe a little info behind why you chose FabFab, um, why it was a good partner, and uh, maybe also, yeah, why why did you leave the company uh, at some point? Yeah, um, so I mentioned before when I was talking about the basket size at Makerus, we have really a lot of customers, and um, we know what they buy and when they buy, but we were not really able to um, build this e-commerce layer on our own. So we did try that like one or two years, but it's a very unique uh, skill set to, to have and to be able to do it well as like a third revenue stream just wasn't, wasn't in the cards for us. So we were really looking for, um, we were really looking for a partner that would be able to provide exactly this competency. So in, with a very large inventory, with um, good delivery, with um, like an excellent, excellent customer experience, uh, and this is what we discovered with with FabFab, and um, that's why the deal made so much sense at the time, and why it still makes sense now. I mean, it was the last uh, one and a half, two years were uh, extremely successful for Bakerist and FabFab. It was exactly the right time to do this. You know, it put us like in a excellent position to um, really be able to offer the best services and the best products to our community during lockdown. Mm -hmm. And what changed for you personally, like, or for the company also, like uh, how once a partner came in, uh, were you still like independent of doing your own choices? Like what, what changed for you? 
I would say, you know, it's like a lot changed, but a lot stayed the same. <laughs> Nothing changed really that quickly, which was, which was interesting. Um, but it changed, I would say, like step by step towards like a very solid uh, strategic play. And for me, I mean, I left the company, I would say, m more really for personal reasons than, um, you know, that that my journey there was done or something. I could have I could have stayed forever. <laughs> I loved I mean, I loved the topic and um, I loved the community part of it. And I was just really comfortable there. But um, what I also felt is that I was also perhaps too comfortable and that there was things that I wanted to do in my life or things that I wanted to explore that I wasn't able to develop or, or to do from that position. Um, and I think of course, of course, like the deal had so much, uh, or the exit had so much, you know, was such an opportunity for reflection of like, what is the next step? But it was so, um, tied to the timing of the lockdown of covid of homeschooling um sort of this this fear of like what is what's happening in the world if you think back to like early 2020 that this really put me in a different space mentally and i felt like i for sure have to get back to canada to see my family i need to connect with my family um, i want to do this uh, I want to do this gap year or this like travel year with my kids. It's something that we actually talked about as a family for a long time, but we kept pushing off into the indefinite future because it never was the right time with, you know, with work or with anything. And then I just reminded myself, you know what I always said when I sold the company, this is what I would do. And I had to really give myself then the push to say, okay, this is now my chance. I just have to recognize that. Mm. But in general, but in general, I mean, looking, yeah, since you mentioned the pandemic, makers must have been like a clear winner uh, because many pe people just stayed at home. They didn't have anything to do. Like they were looking for new hobbies. So uh, that must have been like a huge growth driver, driver for makers at that time. Yeah, it was a it was a real growth driver. I mean, and um, I would say in, in in different part in different phases of the pandemic, in different ways. So in the beginning, we really um, were able to engage our community to support this mask making uh, efforts. There was there was a period in time when um, fabrics were sold out, when disposable masks were sold out, and we could really um, offer you know, offer the use of our platform and building this feature to have um, businesses and people request masks that needed them urgently, let's say for kindergartens or for um, elderly homes or for um, veterinarians, like all these maybe like not, not super essential medical workers, but people that would still need masks to continue with their work could request that um, our community make masks for them. And we were able to come up with, I think, 70,000 masks that got donated over our platform. And that's really people at home that say, okay, I have like some extra fabrics and I'm, I'm willing to sew 30 masks and send them somewhere all on my own costs. And that, that, that's... Um, 
that's one of the things I was actually most proud of in the end, because it was really people coming together um, and doing what they could. Then we went through a, a different phase or different phases where, you know, people were just sick of sewing masks and they basically sewn masks for every person that they knew and their dog. <laughs> um, and then we, uh, we really saw it as, as our chance to try and give them some sort of light, different uh, content to just engage with them in a way that wasn't pushing sales, that wasn't pushing them to, to do something, but was really just saying like, we're there for you. So we, did then also a lot of content about, you know, things to do at home with your kids, because we realized like a lot of people were now um, maybe not having the time to do their own DIYs, but we're having a lot more time face to face with their kids. So we focused on that for a while. Um, and then, you know, over time, was we saw the lockdown was not really going to end or this sort of like new way of spending more time at home would, would stick with us for a while. We really then got just back to business as usual and um, made sure to, and by that point had really integrated all of the e-commerce inventory, all of the fabrics and wool and everything from FabFab into the website. And we're able to offer this really, you know, 360 degree experience from the very first idea of the project all the way through to the end. That's, that's really cool. So what? tell us, what are you doing today now that you've left Makerist um, and yeah, the, the company is, uh, is on, on, the, on its own, so to speak, <laughs> without the founders anymore. So what, what are you doing today? You're at Tomorrow's Education, I saw. Um, so what, what is that? And maybe you can briefly talk about that. Uh, Tomorrow's Education is um, an edutech startup that's focusing on the areas of sustainability, entrepreneurship, and tech right now with a professional master's course from the VU Executive Academy in Vienna. Um, what I love about this company is that it's really strongly focused on purpose. So um, the company is really about educating or yeah, educa educating change makers, people that want to use knowledge to take action, to make positive change, and everything's really set up in this way. And the last year was for me being on sabbatical in Canada, I got really into these topics of purpose, um, really deeply into the framework of the purpose economy from Aaron Hurst. And um, the mission of tomorrow's education really resonated with me. And so I just, um, I offered to join and support on um, creating the brand. So we're going through now through a really intensive rebranding process, which uh, everyone will be able to see by say, middle of October uh, and really setting up the marketing team with the right processes and structures that's, uh, that's needed for this phase. What's an excellent journey in what's an excellent CRM journey? What are the messages that have to reach people at which points in their journey to convince them to, um, to, to join this program? You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a really different value proposition than Makerist. So at Makerist, uh, we had a lot of customers, a lot, a lot of customers, but that were the barrier to purchase was very low because they were purchasing really in an, a price range, let's say, of two to 12 euros per product. And at Tomorrow's Education, the 
the program costs 24,000 euros. So you have to imagine uh, there's a there's a really different type of, of thinking and consideration that goes into purchasing a, a degree like that from a brand that, you know, maybe you don't know. It's not actually its own university. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting thought process. Like, what are the messages that are that are really going to convince uh, those first hundred customers? Yeah, but it's interesting. I think it's uh, yeah, maybe not a coincidence that with the pandemic you moved kind of more into the um, sustainability or kind of uh, purpose economy space. Um, I think many people in that time were asking themselves, okay, what am I doing here? Like, is it actually what I want to do? And um, is it like, um, does it um, align with my values? And and so yeah. Um, I think, I, we I think that's, that's definitely like true for the pandemic, but I also think it's true for, it's a really true statement for people that founders that leave their companies. You know, mm-hmm. I, I had a really interesting talk with Anna Alex uh, and she said that this is, you know, also a trend that she's noticed is that when people leave their companies, they say the next thing I do is going to be more impact driven or more mm-hmm. sustainability mm-hmm. focused. And yeah, yeah. That, was, that was definitely... And I mean, we, we have definitely a lot of uh, problems to solve there, I would say. Um, so, yeah, I, we need to come to an end, unfortunately. Um, but uh, an important questions, uh, question I want to ask in the end. So your top learnings uh, for founders out there from start to, to exit, what are those? Oh, so I've been on a really long startup journey. You know, it's not that classic startup that uh, that you, you start and then it's super successful right away and um, you have that, that huge exit right away. I have this startup journey where it was successful and then it was less successful and then we had to pivot and then we had to uh, have other challenges. My main learning is that it's it's a long road and everything will always feel urgent. Everything will always take longer than you want. You always think, oh, we just do this and it will be done quite quickly. No, everything you start will take a lot longer. Um, my, my learning is that you can't fix it with speed or with putting in extra hours, um, but you can only fix it by doing the right things and doing them together with your team. So First, focus on what are the right things that have to happen. So do not first things first, but right things first. And the other point is um, cherish your team. They're, you know, they're the ones that are going to help you get there. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Team culture and team spirit is super important to actually achieve your goals as well. Thank you, Amber, uh, for being with us today and sharing all your insights. Uh, And also many thanks to our audience for listening in. We are releasing our Founders Podcast every Friday. So follow us on Spotify or any other podcast app to get the newest episode. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. If you did, how about you subscribe on Spotify and or iTunes and give us a rating.